My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this, if the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, He would have stayed awake and not let his home be broken into. So too, you also must be prepared. For at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. The Gospel of the Lord. In these days where people are said to be more divided and polarized on more issues than we can imagine, it can be hard to predict what will be the next thing to create a reaction or an overreaction. For example, a couple weeks ago, we went through the twice a year changing of clocks from daylight savings time to standard time, where we fall back and change our clocks an hour early before going to bed on Saturday night. As someone who struggles to get the proper amount of recommended sleep per night, I'm already a fan of getting an extra hour. In fact, I'd love it if we did it every Saturday into Sunday. Of course, we don't actually gain an hour back. It's just returning our collective clocks to where we had sprung ahead and lost an hour back in March. Well, about a year or two ago, legislation had been passed to abolish this twice-a-year changing of the clocks. The argument being that not only does the springing ahead and falling back seem to annoy a large number of people, but the change has actually been scientifically linked to all kinds of physical and mental health problems for people and also has been shown to cause an increase in car accidents the week after the time change. So originally the proposal in the United States Senate was to keep Americans permanently on daylight savings time. But then a whole bunch of medical associations and scientists started pushing back, saying that if we're going to lock the clock, as they say it, standard time is actually better for a whole host of reasons, which, as I was reading through them, made a lot of sense to me personally. In any event, I think I liked a tweet from the Save Standard Time folks only to get this onslaught of messages and memes back to me, revealing how controversial a stance this actually was. I wasn't prepared to being asked if I was secretly a vampire. 
Most of the other messages went along the very snarky lines of saying, yeah, you got to love standard time, nothing like eating lunch and watching the sunset. The illusion of daylight savings time is that the days are longer. In reality, all we've done is manipulated the clock to, to fool ourselves to think that we have more daylight. The number of minutes that the sun is up doesn't change because of the time we set our clocks. By late June, we're at a peak of almost 15 hours of daylight per day. And by the end of December, we'll be hitting just under six hours of sunlight. The changing of the clock doesn't change that fact. If anything, the clock change just calls attention to this natural phenomenon that in winter there's less daylight than there is during summer. But one of the things that all the the messages and memes that I got from the pro-daylight savings time crew highlighted was how much people disliked darkness, which is an interesting thing for us to reflect on. How there's something that's built into our nature that craves light. And that's not just a biological reality. That's a truly mind-body-soul thing. Providentially, as the hours of daylight have been reducing in recent weeks, and we were jolted by the changing of clocks to recognize that reality, at the same time, we've been encountering a lot of spiritual realities that only added to that kind of gloomy feeling. November started with the celebrations of All Saints Day, and then quickly went right into All Souls Day with the remembrance of all the faithful departed. And just by the nature, we can't help but focus on those who died. And then the scriptures at Mass over on the last few Sundays have all been bringing up those themes of death and the end of time. And now here we are at the the start of the new church year, where we begin spending a bulk of our Sunday Mass readings this next year hearing from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And on this first Sunday of Advent, this liturgical season that precedes Christmas, there's that impulse to want to just jump in and catch up with all the marketing and programming executives who've been promoting Christmas since October. Yet we don't hear about angels and stars. We don't hear about Mary and Joseph. Not yet. We begin Advent with our scriptures talking about Jesus' coming, but not his first time at Bethlehem yet, but his final coming. Whether that means the end of the world or the end of our time on this world, whichever comes first. We begin Advent focusing on the fact that every human being at their end comes face to face with Jesus. And those realities, the end of the world, our end, have been characterized as as dark themes. The apocalyptic images from the gospel Passing cemeteries, we kind of lump all those things into things that we don't want to consider and we don't want to face. Kind of like changing the clock. We try to distract ourselves from considering them or deceive ourselves to believing that we're in control by ignoring them. Yet the gift of the, the season of Advent is meant to very gently turn our gaze to accept those realities. That yes, there will be an end to our world and to us. But that shouldn't be something that instills fear for those of us who are believers. God instead wants us 
to use the darkness. To recognize that this season of Advent as a season of hope. And hope isn't optimistic or pessimistic. It's realistic. It's made to mean that we're going to reflect on what's not of Him in our world and in ourselves. To acknowledge all that's not right, all that's broken, all that continues to break. To see how often we've fallen for the lies that someone or something other than God Himself is in control. And to recognize that desire for things to be made right, for healing, for restoration, for an end to darkness once and for all. And then to hear anew God calling us out of that darkness into the light that comes from His promises to us. And that's what the prophet Isaiah was speaking to our our Jewish ancestors close to 3,000 years ago in that first reading. Here God's chosen people had witnessed the loss of their promised land. Their, Their kingdom was left in shambles. It seemed all the forces of darkness were conspiring against God and his people and they were succeeding. Mostly because of the lack of faithfulness on God's people's part. So all that remained was of this once vast and mighty kingdom was this remnant of the, the 12 tribes with Judah and this small minority in the city of Jerusalem. So if they had newspapers and television sets, it would all be bad news all the time. And that seemed to be growing worse by the day. And in the face of such bleakness, the prophet Isaiah sees a bright vision. He says, in days to come, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established at the highest mountain, and all nations will stream towards it. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. The imagery sounds too good to be true, but Isaiah tells them that it will come about as long as the remnant just remains faithful and walk in the light of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah's words greet us some 3,000 years later and are just as true today. Because God's promises are irrevocable. So when we're troubled by the bleakness that we see in 2022, we're meant to have our hopes raised by the promises made to our ancestors and listening to that call to walk in the light of the Lord. And we do that by listening to St. Paul's words in that second reading to the Romans, where he calls us to, to focus on the only thing that we have power and control over, and that's our choices and our decisions. And so Paul calls us to cast off the works of darkness, all the ways that we've turned aside from God in favor of pleasures and selfishness and self-centeredness in this present life. And when we do that, we can feel that tension of living in this space of God's promises having been fully revealed, but not yet fully realized. And we recognize that longing for God's final coming to make all things right. Yet we're also told that that mountain of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied is here at Mass. Every time we walk up this aisle to receive Jesus in the Eucharist, We're having a true, real encounter with Jesus. What better preparation could we have for that final 
eternal encounter with him. Because of some end time and rapture preachers who've distorted this gospel into something of fear and dread, they give this, this mistaken notion that being left behind as the bad thing, if you carefully read it, it's those who are oblivious to life who find themselves like those who were mocking Noah as he was building the ark and ignoring the raindrops as the dark clouds were starting to pour in. It's those of us who are left behind who can withstand the floods and it will eventually emerge in the light of a new day. So this first Sunday of Advent, we enter into this season confidently, courageously, knowing that the light of Christ's presence guides us through whatever darkness it is that we're experiencing. He comes to give us the eternal daylight that our hearts and souls long for. When we remember that Jesus comes not to condemn us, but to save us if we let him.